You are listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. We are going to be in the book of Esther. And so um, we together, if you are here for this series, or if you're not able to be here and you catch it online, we're going to go through every word of this book. And so we're going to go through it verse by verse, chapter one today. Um, There's a Bible uh, underneath your chair there. Um, But the the premise of this series is simply this, and we'll see this in the story of, uh, of Esther. That, uh, that you and I live in a kingdom right now. And I'm using that word a little loosely. There might be one you prefer more. I'm using the word kingdom. We have a kingdom of, uh, of America, the kingdom that we live in. But within that, you've got sort of sub-kingdoms that you may have. Uh, I belong to this, you know, as a student might say, this is my school uh, this is where I work. This is my, uh, my family. This is my neighborhood. These are my friends. This is the, the team I play on, whatever it is. And, and what happens is we have, this, we have this big kingdom we all live in, obviously, or here in America. We live in America. But then there's like sub-kingdoms within it. And ultimately, as Christians, we know that what we live in is the kingdom of God. And so as we live in whatever kingdom there seems most prominent at different times in our life, we have to remember that even though we are in those kingdoms or that kingdom, that's where our, our, our address is, that's where we're physically located, we are actually a part of the kingdom of God. The book of Hebrews says this. You don't need to turn there, but I'll just read it to you from chapter 12. He's talking about Noah and how God shook the heavens and he sent the the flood and judgment. And it says that God said, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. All the other kingdoms that we have one day will be gone. If you're in school, you graduate someday. If you're at work, you retire someday. If, it's, if just the earth is your kingdom and anybody here is a part of that, uh, really one day you graduate to the church triumphant, we call it, when you're in glory with him. But one day, all these different kingdoms come to an end, but there's an unshakable kingdom that is now and forever. And so this whole series, you're just going to hear me say, choose a kingdom. Choose a kingdom. When you live here, will you live as a citizen of this place, or will you live as a citizen of heaven in this place? Here's the very obvious um, statement to make. If you are going to live as a citizen of heaven, a kingdom of heaven, while you are living in the kingdom of earth, it is going to cost you. There are going to be times you're going to have to go against the grain, and it is going to cost you. But this is really the fundamental question of the Christian life, isn't it? Well, I know I'm a Christian, so I know my home is there, but right now my my home is, is here. So how do I live? Well, that's what this thing gives us the answers to, but perhaps no book more than the book of Esther. Esther's a story about a woman, a young woman who is living in the pagan, heathen, uh, Persian empire, but she is Jewish, so she's a worshiper of Yahweh, and so she has this huge kingdom of approximately 50 million people, a lot of people estimate, uh, and she is living in that the kingdom that doesn't worship God, yet she is a worshiper of God. So we get to watch her and learn from her example. 
First thing to see is that this is absolutely a true story. This is a historical narrative, and I'll show it to you. In uh, chapter 1, verse 1, now in the days of Ahasuerus, uh, the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. Notice what he says. This is not a, a little Aesop's fable that's just going to have a story and someone's just writing it and just going, oh, let, let's call her Esther and we'll put that name in there. I mean, he starts out and couldn't be more clear. This is Hebraic, so it's Hebrew, a historical narrative. It names the king. It says his reign. It gives the location, India to Ethiopia. It gives the number of provinces. It gives Susa, which is um, the citadel. It's the capital. It's the big fortified area where the king is. This is history that we're talking about here. So let me give you a little bit of the history of Israel. You have the nation that split into two, Israel and Judah. And then you have in, um, in 720, uh, 722, the northern kingdom had just become, they just wandered from God. And as they were wandering and wandering, the Assyrians came in, took them into captivity. The southern kingdom looks and they start going, okay, did you see what happened to the northern kingdom? If we don't start doing right, God is going to punish us in the same way. So are we going to follow God or not? And they chose not. So they didn't follow God. And so uh, the Babylonians in about 605 came in and they took the southern kingdom of Judah. That's really the emphasis here. The Babylonians took the southern kingdom of Judah and took them into captivity. So this is the Babylonian exile. Then about 70 years later, the Persians came on the scene, and King Cyrus comes in, defeats the Babylonians, and wishes to fulfill a prophecy, actually in Scripture, to send the Jews back to their homeland, to rebuild their city, to rebuild the temple. So Cyrus does that. He sends the Jews back, except not all of them go. And there's reasons for it, and, and I think some of it's probably a little presumptuous to try and figure out, but why wouldn't you? Like, if, you, if, you're in, if you're in captivity and then all of a sudden you are set free, why wouldn't you go back to your homeland? Well, I think there's just pragmatic reasons. If you have this place that has been laid waste to and just been laying there for 70 years, all of a sudden, if thousands and thousands of them all of a sudden rush back, it may not be able to sustain them. So they might need to go back in waves, but I, I think perhaps an even bigger reason is they're there in Susa the capital, and the Persian Empire, this big citadel, this big fortified place. My kids go to school here. I've got a job here. I've got my, my livestock here. I've got my home here. Why wouldn't I just stay here instead of go back? And I think some people probably chose comfort. Some people probably chose security as well. If you think about it, if, uh, if the Persian Empire capital is up here and then Judah is down here, um, and let's say Persia gets attacked, which they did multiple times, um, which one do you think they're going to protect more? This little band of Jews that has left and gone back and sort of created their own nation within a nation in the kingdom of Judah, or where the king lives in the big citadel, the capital city of the empire? Well, of course they're going to protect here. And so some of it may have been a bit of self-preservation. 
So you have Cyrus comes in, the Persian Empire, they take out the Babylonians, and his son is, I always say Darius, I'm, I'm assuming it's supposed to be pronounced Darius, uh, Darius, who came in and he fought the Greeks, the Greeks had started to rise up, the Egyptians did too, the Babylonians even started to percolate a little bit, but he came in and he really fought the Greeks, had some victories, minor losses, and then he had one loss in particular, the Battle of Marathon, where um, he just got beaten back and was embarrassed by the Greeks, and he vowed to avenge Persia was going to defeat Greece. But before he could, he died. And so his son took the throne. And his son took the throne. His son, Ahasuerus is his name. It's the name that we just read. His son took the throne. Egypt and Babylon started to grow even more. He had to put those two down. And then at one point, he just said, I'm going to do what my, my father, my grandfather, what they weren't able to do. I'm going to go take out the Greeks. I'm going to go avenge uh, on behalf of Persia. On, a, on, on, um, on behalf of my father, Darius, Darius, we're going to go and we're going to attack the Greeks. So before they go to have this huge military campaign against the Greeks, they have a six-month planning summit to try and figure out what they're going to do in these, they're going to lay out their battle plans. And that's what we have in the book of Esther. Chapter 3, or verse 3, excuse me, in chapter 1, at the very end, it says, The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. This is before the king. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So six months, they are just planning and partying. This is schmoozing with all of the governors and all of the nobles, but they're planning to go, and they're planning to go and attack Greece. And what would you do after six months of all these things happening? Well, you would have another party, wouldn't you? So for seven more days, they decide to have a party. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the gardens of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains, violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen with purple to silver rods, marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, which is this igneous rock. It's purple in color and has crystals in it. Uh, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stone. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. There is no compulsion. If you, have a different, if you have a different translation, you might have something very different written there. This is the word for compulsion. is the only time it appears in the Hebrew, and so people don't really know how to translate it. I think the best way to understand it is to just read what's coming next. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. In other words, he said, hey, servers, come here. And as the servers are going around, sometimes they might say, I'm sorry, sir, you've had enough. And he said, don't say that. If somebody were to say, can I have some of that? And they go, that's the really, really expensive stuff. And he's, he doesn't really need the expensive stuff anymore, you know? Uh, go ahead and give him the expensive stuff. There is no last call. There are no limits at this party. And this king... Ahasuerus, in Hebrew, it's, um, 
it's Akash Ravash, and so that's where you get Ahasuerus. Um, if you take the name in Latin or Greek, actually, as well, and you translate it, you get the name Xerxes. So this is King Xerxes of the Persians, who has just had six months of planning and kind of partying, and then said, now let's drop the planning thing, and now we're just going to party for a week, and all you servers, just give anybody here to all the nobles, all the leaders, all the rulers, all the everybody throughout this little, this little group of leaders in the kingdom, give them whatever they want. And so he is leading a nation a very multi-ethnic empire, actually, of about 50 million people at this time. Now, in order to understand the rest of the story, I have to jump in history for just a moment. I, want, I need to show you Xerxes was also crazy. And listen, hey, 50 million people, multi-ethnic. I mean, you talk about a challenge in front of you here. But he was also just a madman and just, just um, these delusions of grandeur that he had. He eventually did go and attack the Greeks. I'm jumping a little bit and then I'll come back. He did, eventually did go and attack the Greeks. And um, they went to this place called the Hellespont. It's, uh, it's in Turkey. Turkey's actually in Asia and Europe. And it's a little body of water that goes right through those two portions of Turkey now today. And, um, and they were going to cross over that by building bridges to defeat the Greeks. So he had some engineers go out and build bridges so the mighty Persian Empire could walk across all these bridges. Well, there was a big storm, and the waves kicked up, and all the bridges were destroyed. The uh, um, historian Herodotus actually tells us this story. Listen to what happened. When Xerxes heard that the bridges that they created were now gone. When Xerxes heard of this, he was very angry and commanded that the Hellespont, that's the body of water, be whipped with 300 lashes and a pair of fetters, picture like handcuffs, be thrown into the sea. I've even heard that he sent branders with them to brand the Hellespont, the water. Oh, but there's more. He commanded them while they whipped to utter words outlandish and presumptuous. Bitter water, our master thus punishes you because you did him wrong, though he has done none to you. Xerxes, the king, will pass over you, whether you want it or not, in accordance with justice. No one offers you sacrifice, for you are a turbid and a briny river. Can you imagine this scene and what is happening? Now, and how'd you like to be the guy that Xerxes tells, hey, go tell these guys to do this, and you've got to be the one to go, he wants you to whip the river. He wants you to get like the branding, like hot metal brands, and, and do that to the river. He wants you to talk smack to the river while you're out there doing it. So I'm just picturing, the, I mean, this is ridiculous. Get, get the, the shackles, like the handcuffs, and toss them, the idea of you are now bound under the power of almighty Xerxes. But just picture them out there like, bad river, wham, and just whipping this river. That's what Xerxes wanted them to do, and they did. And then look, there's more. It says, he commanded the sea receive these punishments, and that the overseers of the bridge over the Hellespont be beheaded. The ones who, the engineers who built the bridges that were taken out by the storm, he ordered them to be beheaded. So this was done by those who were appointed to the thankless honor 
and new engineers set out, set about making the bridges. I bet they did a very good job the second time around. This guy's crazy. You need to know that as you hear the backdrop of this story. Back to Esther. Where's the queen in all this? Now she appears. Verse 9. This is not Esther yet, but verse 9. Queen Vashti is her name. Also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to a king Ahasuerus, so to King Xerxes. So the, all the men are partying over here, the women are partying over here, and the queen is leading that one. And so what he does is he sends these um, eunuchs, these seven eunuchs that um, serve him. Eunuchs are, um, they, they are self-castrated men, so they wouldn't, be, um, they wouldn't give in to any of the temptations of the world. They are trying to say, our allegiance is to you alone, Xerxes, and that's it. They are very, very loyal. They would dress in a way it's very obvious who they are. Their life is about serving the king. In other words, they're about to bring a message to the queen, and there is no way she could possibly go, are you really from the king? She would know. Look at verse 10. It says, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, and I'm not even going to try those names, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So now what he just did is he said, go get my wife. She is good looking. And so let's bring her up and have her now come in front of everybody right here because she is good to look at. Now there's some speculation here and we don't really, really know. It talks about um, get her here with her royal crown. Some people think he's saying have her here wearing only her royal crown. Some think, because, they, because she and Xerxes apparently have a kid, so if the timeline is right, she might be pregnant at this point, and so she maybe just doesn't want to show her pregnant body, or maybe it's a combination of both. It's come wear your crown and you're pregnant. We don't know. I think the point here, though, big time, is he is trying to say, get over here so these guys can ogle at you, and um, what have we been doing? It is the most testosterone-filled place you can possibly imagine, and we have just been drinking without limits for a week. Why don't you come up and let these men leer at you? And it says, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Why is he so mad? Summon my wife. Well, in that day, a, a husband could do that. Not to mention, this is the king, and she's a subject in the kingdom. And so when the king says, get up here, you get up there. You don't, you don't deny him. But he's also got a problem because he's got all these other guys there that he's about, remember, they're about to go and attack the Greeks. He needs them on their team. And now did he just show that he can't even control his own wife? And he's supposed to go command this multi-million person army and ask them to follow him. So he's got a problem. So what do you do when you're embarrassed by something? Oftentimes we overcompensate and we double down. That's what he does. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being the seven princes of Persia, I'm gonna try it, Karshana, Shathar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsana, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. He's gonna get some advice from these guys. Verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? 
because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. We said, get over here, and she didn't come. What are we going to do? Then Memucan, this is verse 16, said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of a king Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women. Remember, they're having a party over here in this other part of the castle. Causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she didn't come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials. And there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. In other words, he just said, uh, King, here's your problem. In that day where the husband could, could rule the house with an iron fist, so to speak, um, if Vashti didn't have to listen to her husband, who, by the way, was also, they thought, the God King on earth, well, now all the other women in the empire are going to start having a revolt against their husbands, so to speak. And he's saying, your huge empire and all these people that are here, by the way, all the leaders you're going to have a serious problem now throughout the empire in every single household. You see the dilemma. If she gets away with it, everybody's going to think they can get away with it, and the whole kingdom's going to be changed. So what do you do? Well, turn it to your advantage. That's what he does. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. Let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout uh, all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to people in his own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So the first way was they go, if word gets out that even Vashti doesn't have to do this, then all of a sudden, all the women of the kingdom, there's going to be this kind of revolt in the homes. And he goes, here's what we'll do. Let's flip that on its head and say, look, she's the queen and if the queen can't get away with this, well, then surely you can't get away with it either. This is all politics. This is all him with all these guys going, I'm going to have a problem in my house, in my little district that I rule. What are we going to do? And he says, we're going to double down. I'm going to send out an edict and formalize it. We're going to, they're going to know that Vashti was punished for this. So now they'll be thinking, even the queen doesn't get away with this. Well, surely I can't either. That's the backdrop. The key in this, though, is in verse 19. Get rid of Ashti and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. I'm going to have to give a spoiler. There's about to be a kingdom-wide beauty pageant in chapter 2 because they need to replace this rebellious, rebellious queen. And you know who it's going to be? It's Queen Esther, or Esther, soon to be Queen Esther. A non-Christian might read this book and go, well, that's a funny coincidence. 
How about that? Look, look at all the different things that happened in order now, what we'll see over the coming weeks, to see Esther move into this position of authority. Or they might say, wow, this is, this is a, a brave young woman, and, she is to, and you'll see it. It's a phenomenal story. She's to be emulated, and that's about it. A Christian sees this rooted in history and knows this isn't some fairy tale. We see God in everything. In fact, the book of Esther is one of two, actually, you can go Google the other one if you want, because there's homework, uh, is one of two books of the Bible where God is not mentioned. That's one of the reasons why this book, although it was very widely accepted into our canon of scripture, there were some people throughout history that had a problem with it. I'll read you one quote. He says, I am so, one theologian says, I'm so great an enemy to Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all, for it has too many heathen unnaturalities. Which pagan theologian do you think said that? Martin Luther. Now, I think he softened it a little bit later in life, and he actually did teach from this book. But throughout time, you could see, if, if there's, a, like this whole book, I hate to use the term religious book, um, but if you've got this religious book, and then you've got books within it, and then you have one that doesn't mention the name of God, you can understand why some people might go, well, why would we have this? This just feels like a, a history thing. And the question is, is God in this? Christians? Of course. We should see God all over this. We should see God in, in, in everything that we've seen so far, this powerful madman declaring himself to be, he called himself the God King. He thinks he's in complete control, can just do whatever he wants, serve his own purposes. And, there is, and what we see and what we're going to see throughout this story is even though his name isn't mentioned, you and I can look and we can know God is at work behind the scenes to use even this crazy powerful man in this huge kingdom and he's going to take this young woman and he is going to use her to enact his purposes. God is at work, even if it doesn't explicitly say God. This is how God works. This is where um, uh, the Greeks, when they, when they rise to power after the, after the Persians, they rise to power and they go, let's, let's Hellenize the world and let's get the whole world speaking Greek. And you know what happened? Now we have a New Testament that you can write in Greek because the entire world could understand it. Caesar Augustus has a census, and he's thinking he's just moving the pieces in his kingdom, but what's he doing? He's moving the holy family down to Bethlehem where Christ is going to be born. God is always, always working behind the scenes. Christian knows that even the world may not see this. They may just see events transpiring. They might even see some great coincidences happening, but a Christian can look and say, God is at work. This man's madness is eventually going to be used to bring Esther into the kingdom who will save God's people. There's elections coming up this year. Thought I'd start prepping you now for that. No matter what happens, the Christian can be at peace knowing that God is over whoever is in what office? When we look at the vile things that are happening in the world today by people who would call themselves leaders, the Christian can be at peace and know one day 
they will answer to God himself for what they have done. Because they are not higher than God. One day they'll meet the true king. But it does bring up the question, what about the times we can't see God? What about the times heaven, are, when we're praying and heaven just seems black as night? Or uh, if you've ever heard the expression, heaven feels as brass, where we are praying and it feels like our prayers are just ping, 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 and just not getting through. Keep on praying. What if we're knocking and knocking and knocking and wondering when he's going to open the door? Knock all the louder. He is there. The times that we maybe don't sense him or see him or whatever it is, we can know that he is there working behind the scenes. What if we can't see God? No matter how bad things look, no matter how powerless we feel. Remember Xerxes sending guys out to try and beat the waves into submission? You, you know what the supposition is, and I, I actually hold this as well, that, um, that go out and punish the water, and then we're going to rebuild bridges, and then uh, when we make it across the bridges, everybody is going to look at Xerxes and go, wow, Xerxes told the water it better shape up, and it did. That's a... That's a ridiculous stunt that he's pulling. And as a Christian, I can think of the time when the disciples were in a boat and there was Jesus, the creator, and the winds and the waves are just going and going and going and the real God-man, Jesus Christ, stands up and looks at the wind and the waves and says, that'll be enough, that'll be all. That's enough, be still. And they hear his voice and they stop. It's very helpful for, to believe in the things that we can't fully see. I can't see my salvation. I can't see Jesus interceding for me at the right hand of God, but I don't have to wonder if that's actually happening. I can be at peace knowing he's in control. There's an old Sunday school, <clears throat> an old Sunday school song, all is well, all is well, all is well, all is well. No matter what my eyes may see, I know his grace is covering me, all is well, all is well. So Christian, be at peace. God is in control.